Hey everyone, I'm Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. This is four videos in one. I first filmed on Tuesday, and then of course the invasion happened Wednesday night here in the United States, Thursday morning in Russia and Ukraine. So I just want to talk about that escalation from a conflict between Russia and Ukraine to a full-fledged war. So this piece is gonna be broken down into history, propaganda, how the invasion happened, energy markets, agriculture, sanctions, globalization, and some final thoughts. So if you're like, what's been happening? Why is this happening? This sh should be a good video for you to get caught up on everything that's happened so far. So I am pulling from a Notion document that I've been updating and keeping track in. And I want to again highlight that my work is always a synthesis of other people's work. I'm going to link to journalists and reporters and researchers who are in Ukraine who are covering it on the ground and you should go and follow them and support them as best you can. I'll also link to different resources where you can donate directly to Ukraine. This is just really information about what's happened so far and sort of how we can use that as a frame of reference for going forward. So first off, why is this happening? Putin invaded Ukraine on the premise of demilitarization and denazification. He has assured everybody that he has no plans of going any farther, but that's simply not true. Like his goal is really to unite the USSR again and to get Russia back on what he thinks is a global superpower level. For some history, uh, Putin made it very clear in his speech two days ago that Ukraine used to be a part of the USSR, which no longer exists. However, Ukraine had a progress leader until the 2014 Ukrainian Revolution, when the Ukrainian people protested, overthrew the government, and signed the EU Association Agreement. After the revolution, Putin annexed Crimea, and there was continuous ongoing violence and conflict in the Donbass region in Ukraine over the course from then till now. All of this led to years of violence and economic pain for Russia. The Russian financial crisis happened because they annexed Crimea, because you can't just annex countries and not have a sort of punishment from that from other countries, but Putin still wants Ukraine. And a lot of people question this, and they're like, oh, you know, this is the US saying things, this is Western media. I ask you sincerely to read the piece on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians. He makes it incredibly clear how he sees Ukraine. And if that is not enough for you, I recommend that you go and listen to the video uh, where he talked for about an hour on how Ukraine belongs to Russia. Putin sees himself as the ultimate unifier of everything and he wants to restore history to the present. As the CEA wrote, Vladimir 2.0, Putin has inherited Vladimir 1.0's mantle as the divinely mandated protector of all Russian speakers. Vladimir Putin sees himself as fulfilling a prophecy um, of uniting Russia back to what he thinks it should be. Putin has made his plan for Ukraine and beyond very clear, chasing this ultimate goal of, of reuniting the Russian Empire. He is attempting a form of Kremlin imperialism under the guise of returning countries back to where they belong. And this makes sense, right? So back in 2005, he called the breakup of the Soviet Union the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century. So now his goal is to reunite the greatest geopolitical catastrophe of the century, and he wants to return Russia to being a global superpower. So how is he doing this and why? Point number one, Putin does not like NATO. A lot of his worries stem from Western assimilation and the enroaching power of NATO. He wants Moscow to have a sphere of influence, and he feels like the US and NATO always step on Russia for no apparent reason. And with NATO, he does not like the idea of NATO of being on Russia's borders. He feels like it's enroaching, that they're getting a little bit too close to home. And he expressed his frustration in his speech towards Bill Clinton for not letting Russia into 
NATO back in the 1990s, making it clear that his anger was not only a response to not being let in the club, but also opposition to the Western sphere of influence. And this gets into the idea of Western assimilation, so he does not like countries that are beginning to align to the West is not an option in his eyes. Any form of assimilation from the West would be akin to weapons of mass destruction. Quote, it would not be an exaggeration to say that the path of forced assimilation, the formation of an ethnically pure Ukrainian state aggressive towards Russia is comparable in consequences to the use of weapons of mass destructions against us, which is pretty strong wording. And Putin wants Ukraine back. Ukraine is not a country in his eyes. He gave an ultimatum that basically boiled down to Russia will back down when Ukraine gives up sovereignty, requiring them to recognize Crimea as Russia, demanding that they don't join NATO and that they are demilitarized, which is uh, essentially asking them to do everything that he wants without taking any of their needs into account. But of course, it's more than that. The big problem is that Putin wants more than just Ukraine. You know, it, it, give an inch and they take a mile kind of vibe. Ukraine is likely just the beginning. So that's the situation, arguably very oversimplified, or two core points of what we would need to understand about Putin in order to figure out what's going on. And this gets into propaganda and disinformation. If you watch RT on YouTube for a long enough time, you get a pretty good sense of the level of propaganda that goes into this. There's a lot of Putin only wants to protect and Ukrainian people want this, both of which are highly questionable. But the Russian information machine is a very, very powerful wartime tool. And this ties into the broader political information warfare that we have going on. Putin has perfected some aspects of this. It's a combination of disinformation, both covert and overt as aligned below, as well as active measures to disarm those that you're trying to destroy. And this is what Russia has largely done through warfare posturing, through troop positioning, taking spots in Belarus, and through cyber warfare. And this boils down into disinformation, so Russian media, the constant assurances that they're only doing this to protect and that Ukraine is provoking them, and then also active measures. So they've been building up troops on the border for months and running a number of cyber attacks on Ukraine. This is information warfare, which is exemplified really well in John Boyd's book, A Discourse on Winning and Losing. Putin is doing everything in this picture, creating confusion, disorder, and an attempt to distort any sort of signal to noise ratio that is out there. If you can confuse people, it's a lot easier to take control. This is the first step in warfare, as John Boyd points out. A strategic game is one of interaction and isolation, a game in which we must be able to diminish adversaries' ability to communicate or interact with his environment while sustaining or improving ours. So how did the invasion happen? Putin declared war at 5.45 a.m. Moscow time, stating we simply haven't been given another option to defend our people other than the one we are forced to use today, and that they will seek to demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. His main goal seems to be to overthrow governments and install pro-Russian regimes and to prevent further Western assimilation. So Putin invaded because he wants Ukraine back and there is no promise and no sign that he plans to stop with just Ukraine. Biden pointed that out in his speech today. Russia will go farther if they're enabled to because they Putin's main goal is to get the gang back together to sort of see what he thinks is uh, Russian power back to the forefront. And this is an initial phase of a large-scale invasion, probably. We do see the Russian army potentially standing up against Putin. We do see people in Russia protesting the war, so both in St. Petersburg and central Moscow. Putin's broad goal here is to overthrow the government of Ukraine and install somewhat of a puppet regime. The decapitation strategy will take in local governments into to demilitarize Ukraine and bring them back into Russia. Putin gave a speech earlier today talking that they were forced to take these measures, that Russia will remain part of the global economy, their partners should understand that and not push them from the, from the system. That doesn't really work that way. When you invade another country, I don't think you get to sort of remain part of the global economy. Putin has said multiple times that he does not want to occupy Ukraine. This policy is based on freedom, it's based on defending Crimeans and Donbassians against the threats that 
they face. And he asks for Ukraine to essentially lay off. And the scariest part of his speech and the invasion is that he said to anyone who'd consider interfering from the outside, if you do, you will face consequences greater than any you have faced in history. All relevant decisions have been taken. I hope you hear me. And there is speculation that this is a threat of nuclear war if the United States and NATO, etc. intervene, which they are and they will. Nothing is off the table to a certain extent. This gets into the United Nations Security Council meeting. So the UNSC found out about the invasion during their meeting to try and stop the invasion, which was just ultimate irony. And talks quickly shifted from diplomacy as an option to we condemn these actions. And in the most ironic way possible, and terribly ironic, the Russian Federation is currently chair of the UNSC, and the Ukrainian ambassadors had some choice words for him after advocating that Russia be removed. There's no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, ambassador. So the situation is rapidly evolving. Moscow has stated that they're willing to negotiate the surrender of Ukraine, which would essentially result in Ukraine losing sovereignty. It's really not an option for Ukraine. Ukraine is open to talk, but Moscow keeps on backing down and, you know, being engaging and then is unresponsive because they want to meet in Minsk and Belarus, which is not neutral. And when Ukraine suggested Poland, Moscow was like, nope. So that's kind of where talks are at at the present moment. However, uh, everybody's a little bit confused. Broad Russian messaging on the situation is really mixed. Nobody seems to know what's going on except for Putin. We've seen protests from people in Russia and a lot of this is important to remember. A lot of this is about what Putin wants and what he is willing to do to get it. Lawrence Friedman wrote, the decision to embark on this war rests on the shoulders of one man. As we saw earlier this week, Putin has become obsessed with Ukraine and prone to outrageous theories which appear as pretext for war but which may also reflect his views. And this gets into the very important energy situation. So so Russia's huge raw material provider, they've been a very dependent partner for Europe all throughout history, except for now. Russia supplies 30 to 40% of Europe's natural gas. In the broad energy market, it supplies nearly 10% of aluminum and copper, produces 43% of palladium, and it's also the largest exporter of wheat and the second largest exporter of oil, which the EU, the UK, and the US all purchase. And of course, this creates a multitude of problems because energy security, number one. So yeah, Russia's 30 to 40% of Europe's gas supply, and Europe has had a ton of problems over the past few months because they've tried to transition to green energy policy without true green energy investment. And if they've made themselves very reliant on Russia in this process. And so you could say, oh, well, what's the fix? And the thought will be, well, why doesn't Europe tap into the US or other energy sources? And of course, it's not that easy. As Megan O'Sullivan wrote, there is simply not enough uncommitted natural gas in the global system that could be redirected at, to Europe at a reasonable price. Piped natural gas can only flow where existing infrastructure takes it. And of course, it's getting solved to a certain extent. Qatar is stepping in, but of course the infrastructure in place is not there, and Europe is competing with resources from Asian countries, which creates a whole new pricing war and a lot of tension. And then a bigger fix would be Nord Stream 2, which was is Germany's pipeline with Russia, and it was meant to be a really big solution to the skyrocketing energy prices and the sheer lack of energy stability. Germany halted the approval of the pipeline that's already built. This gets into broader energy markets, and I really haven't even talked about oil or other commodities. Basically, Russia is a core part of the energy markets, and any sort of sanctions will end up disturbing those flows. As Bloomberg wrote, this could spawn a butterfly effect, sending commodity prices spiraling higher as supply woes multiply. And this gets into political security, so roughly 1 in 12 barrels imported into the US come from Russia. Presidents end up being politically responsible for gas prices, where they get punished for gas prices being too high, and oil is already quite high, close to $100 a barrel, so any lost supply would create even more price pressure for everybody. So Russia and China recently came forward with a friendship agreement, and there's a pipeline between 
between the two that will be settled in euros to get away from the dollar. Moscow stated that Taiwan was not its own entity, and both countries seemed to underscore desire to, to broker international peace, <laughs> whatever that means. And China is a huge energy consumer, so they're likely looking for someone to help them have secure access to materials that they use so much of. And really, what the point of this section is that the reliance that Europe has on Russian energy sources is concerning. Energy markets are super important, but what's most important is the policy surrounding them. Energy markets freaked out at first upon the invasion, but they've since called down, calmed down a little bit. European natural gas went up 50% in one day, and oil, wheat, aluminum, etc. are all skyrocketing. This is why we're seeing a lot of caution around all of this. The US and the EU are still really reliant on Russia for energy sources. As Dalip Singh, the deputy NEC director, said in a White House press briefing, our sanctions are not designed to cause any disruption to the current flow of energy from Russia to the world. So that's the state of energy market sanctions. They don't want to disrupt energy markets. In terms of agriculture, Ukraine and Russia are huge agriculture producers. 30% of the world's wheat together. Ukraine is the number one exporter of corn. And Russia is a major exporter of fertilizer, which is important for food production of everything. Because if fertilizer goes, um, then you can't really produce any food. Energy is a common denominator in everything. And, and food is something that every person needs to have, right? We're a globalized economy. So when a country that produces 30 to 40% of Europe's gas supplies and one third of the world's wheat alongside the other country that they invaded, Ukraine is a huge wheat producer. It's called the bed basket of the world. Things unfortunately get really political. And right now, global leaders seem really focused on financial warfare instead of physical warfare and really focused on sanctions, saying that these economic setbacks will stop this man who does not seem to care at all about his economy, which it seems a little bit interesting to focus on finance so much when obviously Putin doesn't care about his economy or else he wouldn't be invading another country considering what happened after they invaded Crimea. Western allies announced a series of sanctions on Belarus and Russia. The West is implementing different types of sanctions. There's different levels to the sanctions. So swift and direct sanctions on Putin and energy market disruption would be the most punishing to Russia, but they would also be the most punishing to the West. Basically, this is a quick summary, but freezing the financial assets of oligarchs, freezing about $1 trillion of their assets. However, they can transfer their assets into crypto, which means either that emergency crypto regulations will have to get passed. The other sanctions involved freezing different banks, including Russia's biggest lender. So banking sanctions are interesting because they can lead to collapse and self-liquidation, but Russia has built up a lot of protection, so this impact might be relatively isolated. There's also restrictive export controls on countries that export technology to Russia. So Singapore, Japan, and Taiwan are all on board with um, not exporting semiconductors, encryption security, lasers, etc. to Russia, which is good. It'll freeze how they're able to proceed as an economy, as a military, etc. Noah Smith had a really good article on this, but basically the sanctions that we're going to talk about are cutting some Russian banks out of the SWIFT messaging system, freezing the Russian central bank's access to foreign currency reserves, increased sanctions on Russian banks, and then establishing an international task force to freeze the assets of Russian companies and Russian oligarchs. And so we're starting to see people get a little bit worried about this in Russia because this is a really big deal. Basically, these sanctions are going to punish Putin, hopefully, and make it harder for Russia to finance the war effort. There was an estimate that they were spending $20 billion a day on the war, and that makes it difficult for them to continue upon that path because that's their entire annual GDP over the course of two and a half months. And so we'll see what SWIFT ends up doing, but getting in a little bit deeper into the sanctions. So the EU closed airspace, their airspace to Russian aircraft. They banned Russian media companies. And I'm going to specifically talk about SWIFT and the central bank freeze. The central bank. So the central bank is responsible for stabilizing a country's currency. When the ruble does fall, as it will because of sanctions, the central bank is going to buy rubles and prop it up in order to limit the fall, as Noah points out in his piece. He also points out an example when the ruble plunged after Putin's first attack on Ukraine in 2014. The central bank 
spent almost 40% of its reserves in order to limit the drop. However, if they do it this time around, it seems like $300 billion of their foreign exchange reserves is held in banks by the West, which are essentially IOUs to the Russian bank. All of a sudden, you know, they have $640 billion in reserves, Russia does, their central bank, but $300 billion of, dollars of those are held by the West, meaning that they don't have access to them because of the sanctions. So all of a sudden, they're not going to be able to support the ruble's fall, and they're not going to be able to stop it from falling, and that'll lead to hyperinflation and massive bank runs, and essentially a sharp sell-off, a drain on reserves, and potentially a collapse of the Russian financial system, mostly because of the reserves that the Russian central bank has overseas. However, they also have a lot of gold reserves, so we'll see how this ends up playing out. And this is an important point too, freezing a sovereign nation's central bank assets is one of the most monumental events in the history of finance and will be a very big deal around financial censorship and censorship resistance. There's been speculation that oligarchs will turn to crypto as a way to get financing and as a way to keep things running. We'll see the EU is talking about putting some rules around crypto, kind of regulating it all of a sudden because of the potential for it to be used as a tool for circumnavigation navigating sanctions. However, there's also a lot of donations happening for Ukraine and crypto. So we'll see what the bank ends up doing and deciding upon that. That's what's going on with the central bank. And then SWIFT. So SWIFT is the Society for Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunications, which is basically how banks talk to each other. It's communication infrastructure for cross-border money flows. And this is essentially the biggest punishment a country can get. However, if Russia cannot use SWIFT, it can't settle energy flows. If you implement SWIFT, that's when people know that you're pretty serious. It's a global co-op of financial financial institutions. It's based in Belgium. It connects more than 11,000 financial institutions across 200 countries. It's basically communications infrastructure for the banking system and it helps facilitate cross-border money flows. Russia currently has their own version of SWIFT, which is because they've been preparing for this. They have SPFS, which they can use to potentially deal with China and other countries are supporting them. And Russia's central bank reserves, as pointed out earlier, are controlled by foreign central banks, so about $300 billion of their $640 billion in reserves. So Russia only has tangible assets like gold and oil to fall back on, which are very powerful in, in this day and age. But with SWIFT, that's essentially cutting them out of the financial system. It'll make it very hard for banks to do transactions with each other. And because Russia has all these assets stored overseas, it'll make it very difficult for them to spend these assets. If you do get booted from SWIFT, people aren't going to want to invest with you. People aren't going to want to, you know, buy Russian assets because it's like, this isn't a great place to be. And it could also make it a little bit harder for Russia to pay for the goods that it does import, as Noah pointed out in his piece. And this is also getting into just broader sanctions from Taiwan, from Japan, from Singapore, who are not going to import tech into Russia. So even if they were able to import different types of tech, it's going to be very hard for them to pay for it because of being removed from the SWIFT system. This weakens their currency. So if all of a sudden, you know, you're removed from the global financial ecosystem, people aren't going to want to do business with you. And so that weakens your currency. It makes it harder for you to buy imports in general, and it makes it harder for rich Russians to spend money abroad. But there's a big loophole in SWIFT uh, because of energy payments. So energy has been a stick in everybody's side during this whole thing as I talked about a little bit earlier because it's exempted. So they're still able to use SWIFT for energy. So you can imagine that there's going to be some circumnavigation because of that, because the EU is so reliant on Russian oil and gas. So that's kind of like the big thing with SWIFT is that it's a really good step, I think, a lot of people think, but it's maybe perhaps not as impactful just because it's exempting energy at, at the current moment. And if you look at this graphic from Max, you can see all the different countries that import gas from Europe, mostly Germany and Germany has been very staunch about you know they 
didn't even want to put Russia off SWIFT in the first place. But that's kind of the situation with SWIFT. It's basically removing Russia from the financial communications infrastructure, making it harder for them to transact with fellow banks and just making it harder for them to do business and be a country in general. And that's impacting, of course, their currency. The ruble is going crazy right now. So there was an exchange rubles for dollars at a rate of 171 rubles per dollar, and it was 83 rubles per dollar before sanctions. So just huge, huge amounts of inflation, huge amounts of what you're able to buy with a ruble yesterday versus today. Huge difference there, a huge cash grab going on right now because everybody's like, what the heck is going on? And trying to get out of that situation. So Zoltan has pointed this out several times that his worry around removing Russia from the banking system could lead to just broader problems for the financial system in general. So this is what he said, the move to ban some Russian lenders from SWIFT could also have wider effects on global funding markets. The decision could result in mispayments and giant overdrafts within the international banking system and spur monetary authorities to react to reactivate daily operations to, to supply the market with dollars. However, derivatives contracts are exempted from US sanctions. So there are some ways that this isn't going to cause like a broad crash in the market, like you're still able to hedge risk through derivatives, but Russian CDS are going to have a very big spread as pointed out by this good meme about Putin's table. To summarize all this, because it can get a little bit technical, Russia is being removed from SWIFT. However, there's as of the current moment, they're still able to do energy payments within the SWIFT system. But this is just a big sign that like, hey, don't do business with Russia. Like they're not like they're not even a part of our friend group anymore. It's just, it's just mostly about putting pain on Russian businesses and, and Russian elites. And a lot of people have commented like, oh, don't punish the people of Russia right now. And I totally agree with that. Like it's completely wrong and totally unfair that this sort of pain is being enacted on the Russian people for having a guy in office who just is, you know, trying to live out some fantasy that nobody knows why he's doing it. There's no rationale behind it, but that's what's going on broadly. And it's really unfortunate. And hopefully the Russian people can, you know, get out of this situation. But that's kind of the deal. It's a lot of financial pain at the current moment. Uh, both Ukraine and Russia were downgraded in terms of debt. So people are like, hey, you know, you might not pay your debt back. <laughs> and it's like, okay, of course not. So yeah, that's kind of the big deal of what's going on is that, uh, you know, the central bank freeze, SWIFT, some banks are going to lose USD deposits from Russian entities due to sanctions and Russian banks will lose USD market access. And that is going to put pain not only on Russian businesses, but also the people in Russia who are essentially dealing with this. China state banks have also announced that they're going to restrict financing for Russian commodities and one denominated letters of credit are still available for some clients. But China and Russia have a very close economic relationship as evidenced by the statement that they released a few weeks ago, days ago. So that shows the delicate balancing act of this, you know, geopolitics and globalization once again. China hasn't really taken a clear stance on anything, rather continuously highlight the importance of comprehensive, cooperative and sustainable security and keeps on asking Russia to talk to Ukraine about every thing. The West is waffling on sanctions because of the economy. The Italian prime minister carved out Italian luxury goods from the sanctions package because selling Gucci loafers to oligarchs is more of a priority than hitting back at Putin. Sanctions are going to impact everybody, not just Russia, but the goal is to sort of kneecap them, right? The personal sanctions on Putin, major banks getting blocked, and Russia getting kicked out of SWIFT. And more! As this foreign policy article points out, it could hit many sectors of Russia's economy in a way traditional sanctions might not. Blocking Russia from importing technology critical to its oil and gas sectors, maritime, defense, and civil aviation industries, even the import of smart of smartphones, cars, and other consumer electronics. The goal that Biden seemed to have with all of this is to, you know, make Putin hurt financially, but this guy is like probably willing to wreck his economy, I think, in order to 
prove a point, essentially. The big question will be, is financial warfare enough or is there going to have to be an element of physical warfare? What's the broad market response? Globalization creates this problem of financial contagion, which is what we're experiencing around sanctions uh, around Russia and Belarus, and it's why these governments are proceeding so carefully. For however you feel about that, that's the reason. Russia's central bank and private sector have almost $1 trillion of liquid wealth, which is a large amount of dollar-denominated assets and could harm the U.S. funding markets, according to Zoltan. And he says that over $300 billion of that money is short-term money market instruments. So if all of a sudden that gets pulled, that could impact U.S. markets negatively and create a little bit of a liquidation crisis or a funding crisis. And so there's this broader risk of financial harm and disruption, an element of which is probably pretty much unavoidable. Bloomberg has a really good table outlining the economic impact of different scenarios where the best situation is, of course, to keep oil and gas flowing. Is that the most reasonable situation? I'm not sure. But that's why the West is playing so carefully with sanctions because they risk energy prices spiking, huge amounts of inflation, and probably a wide-reaching financial crisis if all of this kind of goes downhill. If the West moves too slowly, if Putin moves really quickly, and all of a sudden, you know, energy's gone, fertilizer's gone. Um, and so what happened with the U.S. stock market? I just want to say this really fast. The market rallied on the back of expecting the Fed not to hike because of a war. The market's not a moral compass, but... Uh, you know, never mind the fact that we're facing inflationary pressures from agriculture and energy import risk. Fed's not going to hike, right? Barry had Barry Ritzhold had a really good take on this. The lesson here is never to bet against human ingenuity, creativity, or progress. In the face of horrific existential threats, while the headlines are terrible, gradual improvements are always taking place beneath the surface. So, you know, being bullish on humanity, I think, is hopefully the underlying statement that everybody is trying to say. Russia has been preparing for this, building up their gold supply, becoming buddy-buddy with China, really doing a lot of de-dollarization, having their banks armor up, and militaristically, they have nuclear weapons, especially as Russia tries to keep up with NATO's manpower. As Benedict Evans wrote, it doesn't matter how big your castle is if the trade routes move somewhere else. And I think that's been the big puzzle for a lot of people. Why would Russia harm their economy so much? I don't know. Uh, Timothy Snyder has a really good take on some of the game theory that exists within Putin's brain. No one knows what Putin will actually actually do or why. He may be lost in his personal myth of Russia-Ukrainian unity and truly imagine that he will gain immortal glory by invading Russia's neighbor on the logic that it is Russia's brother and that Ukrainians need a forceful reminder of fraternity. One can imagine such crashing naivety as a fitting companion of a career of provoking. When you believe nothing else, what remains is childish fantasy. However that may be, the habit of provoking might be making it harder for Putin to read the outside world. Just because you live in a house of mirrors does not mean that you can find the exit. Final thoughts. We've been here before. We can learn from history. These acts of aggression can't just be ignored because if you give an inch, they'll take a mile. As Timothy Snyder said, when you deny that another nation exists, you're making a claim that it's okay to destroy that other nation. It's language that we have to pay attention to because it usually precedes atrocious actions. There's been a lot of focus on financially impacting Russia. Things are evolving towards physical readiness, as NATO has pointed out. But yeah, I mean, I think Putin, you know, his thinly veiled threat of nuclear war. As Zelensky pointed out, today everything should be on the table because it's about the threat to all of us, all of Europe. And this is true. Putin is probably not going to stop at Ukraine. And everybody in the world it could be impacted by this, right? Like history repeats itself. But this morning was really interesting. Putin a few days ago was like, if you intervene West, you're going to see severe consequences greater than anything you've ever seen in your entire history. And what was a thinly veiled threat of that was nuclear war. And so this morning we did get Putin essentially threatening nuclear war by saying that he was putting nuclear forces on high alert to Ukrainian facilities containing nuclear 
waste have suffered damage. And basically, this is Putin kind of freaking out a little bit. He's like, this war is not easily won. And essentially, you can see him beginning to spiral a little bit more than he has been spiraling. We're starting to see the Russian people dissent, and we're starting to see oligarchs dissent and leaders in Russia dissent from Putin's actions. People are not happy that the economy is getting destroyed and that things are going to get wildly expensive. And basically, they are trying to position for that now. There were talks between Ukraine and Russia on Sunday morning, but those basically fizzled out. And all of the EU and some aspects of the United States are rallying behind Ukraine right now, sending weapons, sending aid, doing everything that they can to support the country. But with all this being said, we cannot forget the human impact of these decisions. That the entire point of this article and the entire point of this video is to bring light to the situation and to think about the people who are there, right? And to help people understand that this matters. That is the ultimate goal of this video. I have a Notion page if you want to like keep up to date. I've been updating that with notes and, and stuff like that and keeping up to date in that. So if you want to keep up to date in that, I highly recommend you go check that out. And I'll have a list of journalists and reporters, of course, highly recommend that you defer to them. There's a lot of misinformation, a lot of um, just like weird takes right now. So try and cross-reference your sources. I will be back soon. Let me know if you have any questions, comments, thought below, and I will see you all soon. Bye.